Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Finneran's Wake. I am, with unwavering devotion to the cause of great conversation, your loyal friend and host, Daniel Finneran. Thank you so very much for joining me today. If, dear friend and listener, you've not yet subscribed to this channel, on which, if I do say so myself, the most interesting conversations and the best conversations on the internet are furtively being held, I urge you to do so now. The goal of this channel is not only to restore, but to refine the art of conversation, in which I want as many people as possible to engage. With that, I assure you, an extraordinary engagement awaits us today. I'm joined today by a man of towering intellect, handsome visage, unimpeachable manners, and diverse talents. I speak, of course, of Glenn Elmers. Glenn Elmers obtained his PhD in politics from Claremont Graduate University, at whose institute, the Claremont Institute, he is a senior fellow. He's also a visiting research fellow with Hillsdale College. In addition to these prestigious fellowships, he enjoys the friendship of yours truly, an association with which I'm sure he burnishes an already dazzling resume. Included on that sterling resume would be his countless essay and article publications in the Claremont Review of Books, Law and Liberty, National Review, and American Greatness. And of course, he is the author of the 2021 book, The Soul of Politics, a biography of sorts of the great late Harry Jaffa. Glenn, welcome at long last to Finneran's Wake. Well, thank you, Daniel. Uh, it's very delightful to be with you. Uh, we are friends, and I'm very excited to have this conversation with you now that we can share with some other people. So I'm looking forward to it. As am I. I've long awaited the opportunity. Uh, so as I understand it, you are a political philosopher, no? Uh, a student of political philosophy. Uh, those of us who are in what is called the Straussian school or field uh, are uh, trying to be a little bit modest about who and who we don't call philosophers. So we don't generally refer to ourselves that way. Well, for the purposes of this conversation, I think you're the more philosophic of the two. <laughs> okay. And the age in which we're living feels decidedly unphilosophic, uh, or perhaps even anti-philosophical. Today, more than ever, wisdom goes unloved, while reason is subordinated to passion. So how is a philosopher or a political theorist or political scientist supposed to operate in a time like this? What is, what is your role or what is his role? Well, that's a pretty big question. So ever since uh, the ancients, uh, Plato and Aristotle really, uh, political philosophy has understood itself in part uh, as separate from the political regime or the city, uh, to use a term that Plato and Aristotle use, which they just mean the political community or the nation or the political society in which you live. So in one sense, philosophy is a part because it has to, to pursue its own unrelenting skeptical inquiry of the truth. It has to separate itself from the conventions and the laws and the assumptions and the opinions of the political community, which it has to challenge in order to inquire into the truth. At the same time, classical political philosophy 
Greek political philosophy and, and much of the Western tradition, although that changed a few hundred years ago. But for, for most of Western history, political philosophers were also seen as uh, advisors or guides or um, providing in some way some theoretical assistance to those who are uh, in roles of political leadership. Uh, this becomes especially important, and I'm gonna just dive right into the deep end of the pool now. This becomes especially important in the modern world because whereas for most of Western civilization, politics was run by um, what Aristotle called moral gentlemen. Spudaios is the Greek word. And so what you wanted, uh, the natural rule of any decent political society were uh, upstanding, upright citizens who had practical experience and practical wisdom and that kind of common sense was seen as the best preparation for political leadership. But in the modern world, our politics has become philosophized or theoretical. Uh, it's become infected by dogmas and ideologies, which themselves come out of modern philosophy. Marxism and socialism and nihilism and atheism and relativism and positivism and all of these things. And these um, pernicious, in many instances, dogmas make it hard for the man of common sense, for the moral gentleman to exercise his political responsibilities. And so political philosophers in a way, or students of political philosophy, have uh, an even more important role now in a way to clean up their own mess, <laughs> I would say, uh, and to help citizens and, and political leaders navigate the difficulties that arise uh, when politics becomes infected with these ideologies and doctrines. Hmm. So a couple of interesting points there. You you mentioned the differentiation between the practical um, exercise and the theoretical exercise in, in a philosophical sense. As you understand it today, where are we on that spectrum? Are we more in the theoretical or still with a foot in the practical? Well, um Day-to-day -day politics, the uh, political life as it's lived by ordinary non-theoretical people, it always operates in the realm of opinion, of non-theoretical opinion. But uh, much of the modern world no longer operates in the world of ordinary common sense. Um, again, I, I'm going to uh, jump right into a, some sort of abstruse stuff here, but I know you're a highly educated man, Daniel, and uh, we can uh, explain this a little more if you think it's necessary. But I know that you've read Plato, uh, and maybe many of your audience have, and there's a famous image in the Republic where Plato says that every political society is like a cave, right? And it pays attention to, and it reveres, and its opinions are shaped by the images on the cave wall, right? And uh, these can be shaped by whoever um, uh, creates the narratives, the stories, the traditions, the myths, uh, that people need in order to have a political community, right? It doesn't, it's not necessarily uh, malicious in any way, but ordinary people who don't want to live like abstract <laughs> theoretical scholars, uh, every, every decent society needs authoritative traditions and stories uh, and patriotic narratives to hold the community together. And, and these sort of narratives, these sort of stories uh, define uh, the self-understanding of the political community. Strauss, Leo Strauss, who is a very uh, famous and influential political philosopher who fled Nazi Germany and came to the United States and taught for many years 
at the University of Chicago and influenced many generations of political philosophers here in the United States and was the teacher of my teacher, Harry Jaffa, coined an image uh, in the 1930s, which he called the, the cave beneath the cave. And so what he means is in the ordinary cave, we live in the world of common sense. We live in the world in which uh, we understand ourselves as natural beings in connection with nature. We understand that there is such a thing as nature. We think that morality is grounded in nature. But in when the modern world comes to uh, uh, be in a way indoctrinated or, or deluded by various dogmas, by various ideologies, Strauss says it's like being in a cave beneath the cave, right? We lose touch with common sense. We lose touch with the ordinary experiences. So just to put uh, some specificity on this, which might make these very abstruse uh, uh, explanations a little bit more specific, think about what it means when a justice uh, nominated to, a judge nominated to be a justice to the Supreme Court says, she can't tell you what a woman is because she's not a biologist, right? That means that the, the intellectual elite in our society don't understand what a human being, I mean, if you don't know what a woman is, how can you know what a human being is, right? And this detachment, this alienation from ordinary common sense, this ideological framework that separates us from nature and common sense is what Strauss called the cave beneath the cave. And, and this is, I think, the most salient and the most uh, difficult aspect of our politics today, and it helps to explain why our politics today is so uh, angry, uh, so divisive, uh, again, so ideological, um, because we've lost this, this, this uh, connection with ordinary natural human life. So uh, those occupying the highest places in, in our society or in our regime, as you call it, they are, they are located in that cave beneath the cave, just to be clear. Well, all of us are, according to Strauss. Even those of us who, who are familiar with the image, uh, we're all unconsciously, in a way, just to greater or lesser degrees, uh, wrapped up in these ideas. Here, I'll give you one that's especially potent and that Strauss was particularly concerned with. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to throw a, a, a sort of a technical term out there and we can discuss it a little bit. But there's a term that comes out of the 19th century out of German thought called historicism. But really, it's, it's a word that people will understand if you say historical relativism. And it means we're all trapped in our own time, our own culture, right? We could read Plato and Aristotle, but according to the dominant intellectual opinion today, those Greek guys reflected, you know, aristocratic Greek thought in the fifth century BC, and we can read about them, but they live in a different world, right? And uh, historicism or historical relativism presumes that there are no trans-historical truths, right? Whatever we might read in Plato and Aristotle is anthropologically interesting, sociologically interesting, but they can't cross the barrier of time and space. And even those of us who are aware of this, who sort of conscientiously work to overcome this, lapse very easily because it's so potent and it's so embedded in our popular culture, in the universities, this idea that uh, we are trapped in our historical culture. Um, and so these, these doctrines, these ideologies seep into our consciousness in a million ways 
uh, and it's very hard to overcome them. Hmm. So it's up to someone to lead us collectively out of the cave, right? So if we remember the you know, um, the the picture that that Plato depicts in his Republic, you know, we we must be let out of the cave. We must be removed from those shadows on the walls that are dancing before us with the light at our backs, and we must you know see the true light, which is which is the sun ultimately, and 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 the um, celestial spheres. So, whose job is it in this day and age to help us ascend to exit the cave and to work our way back up to reality? Well, um, first of all, not many people get to leave the cave. It's really, uh, you know, in, in the, the image that Plato constructs, it's really only a few philosophic souls who have the courage and the wherewithal and the determination to actually escape the cave. The cave itself, which is ordinary natural political life, isn't such a bad place to be. <laughs> the real uh, question is getting out from that pit that subterranean pit that drives us even deeper, uh, detaches us from the natural political world. And whose job that is to leave us out of, lead us out of the second cave, out of the pit? Well, uh, that's a good question. Um, political philosophers, students of political philosophy can help. But ultimately, uh, what the world needs, what America in particular needs, is statesmanship, which is a word you don't hear much anymore. The think tank where I work, the, the subtitle is the Claremont Institute for the Study of Statesmanship and Political Philosophy. And so it tries to combine an understanding of theory and practice. And those of us who study political philosophy in graduate school are always interested in the theory, but we recognize the importance of the practice. And statesmanship can only really be conducted uh, in its most excellent form by someone who has a natural gift for it, right? None of us can simply will ourselves to be a Churchill or a Lincoln or a Washington. And so we sort of have to wait for a great statesman to come along. And the reason this extraordinary ability is so necessary is because the statesman has to understand human nature. He has to understand the details and the facts of the regime in which he lives, the country in which he lives. He has to have a certain sympathy for the citizens, be concerned about their common good. And he has to have a mastery of language of history, of stories, of the popular culture, so that he can speak to people and persuade them and explain things to them. And all of these uh, attributes, these virtues, uh, are, are difficult and rare. <laughs> and so there's no substitute for the statesman. Uh, some of us have been waiting <laughs> for a long time, um, preparing the ground, so to speak. But ultimately, um, the, the solution to our political problems will really depend on the emergence, we hope, of someone of true statesmanlike virtue. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded of the a quote that I read, and I can't attribute it, but it, it noted the differentiation that's very carefully to be made between politicians, mere politicians, venal, craven politicians, <laughs> of whom we have a multitude of examples, and statesmen, true statesmen, who are motivated by pure ideals. Um, but do you think that as we wait for this figure to arrive, this heroic individual that, you know, all might collapse before, <laughs> before his advent? Well, no one knows for sure. Uh, I'm a little, um, I don't know if this is an overused or underused metaphor, but I'm, some, I'm, I'm pretty red-pilled and some, some of my friends call me black-pilled. <laughs> 
this is a reference to this popular culture movie, you know, The Matrix, where people. Uh, I I can I see the situation as pretty dire. Let me let me forego the the uh, <laughs> the silly metaphors. Uh, I see the situation as pretty dire, and and um, things seem to be getting uh, more intense, more difficult, more challenging, uh, even month by month. Um, let me let me let me just ask you as as a theorist, let's say, and maybe you you don't consider yourself a philosopher. I certainly do, but at the very least, as a theorist, do you find yourself somewhat indifferent to that potentiality because you prefer to retreat into your intellectual solitude and and um, think in these abstractions? and not really worry about the practical implications? Or do you feel a, a deep entanglement between both your theoretical, um, um, well, your, your endeavors, your theoretical endeavors and, and the practicality as well? Yes, emphatically the latter. Uh, so um, the little sect <laughs> within political philosophy that I belong to, emphatically rejects the idea of retreating from pol from politics. Uh, there is always a distinction between the pursuit of philosophy and the pursuit of politics because they're looking for different things. But uh, all the more now, the political philosopher cannot and must not retreat from concern for political life, in part because, and here's another sort of complicated idea I'll throw out there, philosophy itself is in danger today. We are facing now, uh, you can call it wokeism or political correctness or radical leftism or identity politics. It has many different names, but it is in a way hostile to reason itself and therefore hostile to philosophy. It is hostile to Western civilization. It is hostile to the life of the mind and free inquiry. And so to the degree that political philosophers are concerned with philosophy, they must be concerned with politics because in, in, it's not melodramatic, I think, to say that the fate of Western civilization is now, uh, we're now confronting uh, what is going to be the future of Western civilization. Uh, and so, no, I emphatically do not retreat uh, from politics or from concern for political life. Hmm. Yeah, nor did uh, Socrates and, and some of these right. heroes of antiquity of whom you, you, you know, you, to whom you make reference. And I always think of that because there is a temptation and I'm no philosopher, but there is a temptation simply to withdraw because of this madness. <laughs> yeah, and some do. Sure, and I can't altogether blame them for having done so. And I'll have conversations with just normal people, and, and they too have this temptation to, to check out. And they might be conservative-leaning people who might otherwise make a difference, um, but they're just so fed up with what they see um, happening in the country. Uh, but then I'm reminded of figures from antiquity and also figures from our founding era. These are these were men who were highly philosophical. Uh, Jefferson, right? Adams. You can list a, a great number of them, and yet they were all intimately involved in the day-to-day -day processes of establishing this government and making it work. And they did so to the very ends of their lives. <laughs> and they they were indefatigable in their and their approach um, and and what they did. So sometimes I use that as a counter example of, of maybe why we we should resist this impulse, this very strong impulse to 
kind of throw up our hands and walk away from this this mad clown show <laughs> that we that we often see before us. So we, we noted the differentiation between a statesman and a politician. Maybe you could maybe you could name your favorite statesman from history and perhaps if one exists name one who suggests himself in the modern age in the current day sure can i make just two clarifications being an academic i'm always self-conscious about dotting every i and crossing every t of course, of course. Uh, when i said that i was concerned about the, the state of our politics let me emphasize that i'm not either by nature or intellectually a pessimist in part because I reject the idea of historical determinism, right? Uh, our fate is always in our hands and the possibility of moral deliberation and political action always remains present. And so that's one reason, that's one reason I'm not ultimately pessimistic in any deep sense because we never know what's going to happen. Chance and, and luck and providence always play a role in human life. Uh, and for that same reason, I reject the idea of withdrawing. And let me just say one more point about that before I respond to your question. I think one mistake uh, about the inclination to withdraw is it's becoming increasingly clear that there's nowhere to withdraw to. I mean, our, if, if someone is under the impression that uh, the woke communist radical agenda, whatever you want to call it, is simply going to leave people alone, <laughs> uh, that's a fantasy. I, I studied with a great strategy international relations professor in grad school who's now gone last. His name was Bill Rood, and he used to say, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. <laughs> so you may not be interested in the fate of politics and the, the culture war, but it is interested in you. And so you cannot withdraw because there's no place to go. Um, on the statesmanship question, uh, you know, my two favorite are, are Churchill and Lincoln. Um, we could talk about that a little bit. Nowadays, um, I just wrote something that was published a, a few days ago, uh, sort of looking at where the Republican primary stands. And I see, uh, I can see why people are still attached to Donald Trump. I can see why people uh, are very excited about uh, Ron DeSantis. You live down there in the lovely state of Florida. Uh, and I always enjoy going to Florida. Um, both of them, it seems to me, have important virtues, but also are missing something. Um, and if you can put them both together, I'm not sure you'd still quite get a Lincoln or a Churchill, but you'd get a lot closer. Um, and so I, I think we have uh, quite a few politicians out there. There's people in Congress, uh, others, I think uh, are part of the, you know, have pieces of statesmanship, but not the whole package. Hmm. So a DeSantis-Trump hybrid, that would be some tan <laughs> between the two of them. <laughs> Yeah, it's a little, it's kind of an arresting image, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it is. Um, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, is he a Churchillian, Lincolnian? Um, he's interesting. I mean, look, I've been a, a registered Republican my whole adult life, but I find Robert Kennedy very interesting. You know, he's, he's courageous. He's out there saying some things, uh, speaking the truth in a pretty... Uh, interesting and, and uh, impressive way even. So there are people out there. Um, yeah, yeah. I've, and I'm, I'm sure you probably wouldn't have um, 
wouldn't have expected your future self <laughs> to maybe 20 or 30 years ago to have uttered that statement. But I think um, RFK- Robert he, Kinsey's son will be an impressive politician in your lifetime. I would not have <laughs> predicted that. Yeah, and I think a, a lot of uh, both conservatives and moderates are, are looking at that and, and, and saying the same exact thing to themselves, wondering how it could have come to this point where they're, they're re-examining the Kennedy name as, as, a, as, a viable, as a viable one going into 2024. Um, I don't know if I want to go down the Trumpian rabbit hole at this point. <laughs> Maybe you. I mean, I again prefer that for just a little a little while longer, if that's okay with you. Unless you're, you know, you're you're very eager to uh, to dive into it right now. Can I get, just give you my personal thing? I I completely get the people who are sick of him, and some people never liked him from the beginning. And and uh, you know, I'm here in West Virginia, which is pretty strong Trump country. Here's my personal uh, thing: I would vote for him. I would strongly consider voting for him for this reason to send a signal to the establishment, to the Washington Post and the New York Times and the bureaucracy, that we, the American people, are the sovereigns. We decide who to vote for. You don't tell us who to vote for, right? And precisely to the degree, we now have seen the Durham report come out, precisely to the degree that the blob and the establishment and the uniparty have decided that Trump is uh, out of bounds, unacceptable, uh, they don't get to make that decision. We, the sovereign people, make that decision. And so I'd almost want to vote for him just to send that, I, know was, I guess I could say this, right? To send a middle figure, middle finger to the establishment and tell them, uh, we make this decision, you don't. I wonder though, how many middle fingers can be sent to the establishment? Because that was a lot of the motivation behind his election in 2016. Right. You know, those to whom I've spoken, they don't, they don't, um, they don't acknowledge his uh, executive prowess as having been the reason they voted for him. They don't necessarily um, endorse the language that he uses or the comportment, sure. his sexual peccadilloes or worse, <laughs> whatever they may be. They say it was because he was a big F you <laughs> to the, to the establishment, the establishment being the, the ruling class, the, you know, academia, the media, etc. Yeah. Uh, so the FU was sent and, you know, now we have, well, I don't want to say record unemployment because those figures are, are highly uh, unreliable and malleable um, months after they're released. But, you know, we have record setting inflation. We have embarrassments abroad. We have an energy crisis, a crisis at the border. So I don't know, like the, the FU is cathartic, I suppose, for a little while, but for me, that kind of wears off. I, I need something that's that's more enduring. Your thoughts about that? Well, look, I mean, I, I'll, I'll go along with an awful lot of criticisms of him, and some of them I, I even agree with and endorse myself. But he brought a clarity to our politics, which I think should not be discounted, right? Um, if he had not been elected, and if some more establishment, one of the other Republican figures, almost any one of the other Republican figures in the field in 20. Um, I don't think we would have had the the mask torn off the deep. Look, the very fact, let me look, the, the Durham report exposed something that I think is extremely dramatic. The, the mainstream media is downplaying it, right, putting their spin on it. But there is a reason that they tried to destroy him, right? And I think the very, there's a lot of people now who understand that something is deeply wrong, systemically wrong with this country. 
and and Trump gets a lot of credit, you know, in whatever blundering, ham-fisted way he may have done it, uh, depending on how you look at this, but brought clarity and exposed things that had to be brought to light. And I, I think we should not discount that. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about one of the most monumental political scandals in all of American history, perhaps in <laughs> the history of the Western Hemisphere. I mean, this is this is extraordinary, and yet, like you said, almost completely, uh, almost completely ignored by the mainstream media, which is, of course, no surprise. But just to just for those who might not be familiar with the Durham report, maybe I'll just give a, a broad stroke overview of what it is and. And maybe you can fill in some of the gaps. Um, basically, uh, John Durham was appointed during the Trump administration, towards the end of the Trump administration, to investigate the, the Russian collusion, you know, accusations that plagued him during the campaign, and then thereafter, as we learned. So years of of sort of quiet um, investigation <laughs> that really. Um, caused a lot of impatient Republicans to kind of uh, bristle <laughs> and, and demand some results. Uh, years of that led to this recently released report, which basically um, confirms what a lot of people suspected, which was that the FBI really had no predication to, to, to do what they did, which was to, to in investigate figures like Papadopoulos and Carter Page and Mike Flynn and Paul Manafort, right? Names from the past, but are still quite relevant. And this was all basically done with the, the endorsement and conniving and of and conniving with the Hillary Clinton campaign, who was, of course, Secretary of State under the Obama administration. As it turns out, everybody was sort of entangled from the Obama administration to the Clinton campaign to the FBI. So we have the nation's federal Bureau of Investigation, our chief domestic law enforcement organization, teaming up, for lack of a better word, with a political campaign and with a, an incumbent administration, all in order to squash, <laughs> to thwart um, the incipient political rise of this uh, intolerable figure by the name of Donald Trump. And to some extent, it was successful. I mean, it plagued him for years uh, throughout his, you know, uh, administration, ultimately led to the to the Mueller report, right, that investigation as well. So, um it does shine a lot of clarity. It gives a lot of clarity um, into this this ugly, ugly world <laughs> of of our bureaucratic deep state. Um, but right. again, um, and maybe you can comment on that. But I don't know exactly. You know, where do we go from here? So yes, it's now acknowledged that all of these things happened. This is part of recorded history. Um, but what? repercussions are there? Do, is the FBI now disbanded? I don't think that will be the case. Are they removed from their headquarters in Washington, D.C., which is sort of the, the thing that I think should happen, and maybe relocated to <laughs> Oklahoma City or somewhere in the middle of the country? Uh, or is everything just status quo ante? Does everything just return to the way it is? And, and that's my fear, and I think you probably share that fear as well, is even if Trump is restored to office, things might not change radically. Do you think that they will change if he is restored to office, or do you think that they will continue on as they have? Well, if Trump does get reelected, I think he now, uh, I suspect he now has a better sense of what he's up against. I think he came in uh, with some very good intentions, with the right spirit, not quite knowing. <laughs> he, you know, he would, he dealt with, you know, 
the mafia and the New York real estate market, which seems pretty hardball, but those are that's small potatoes compared to the viper's nest of Washington, D.C. I mean, look, you know, the, the national security establishment, this is a vast, powerful, and uh, I'm trying to find the right adjective, uh, highly problematic institution, which has exercised vast power in our politics, uh, often in very secretive ways, right? And I don't think you know, even in its, his relations with Congress and other things, I don't think he quite knew, wasn't quite prepared. I think if he came back a second time, he might be a little bit more prepared. He, he would certainly, I would hope, surround himself with some better people. I, you know, I don't want to get too wrapped up in Trump because people have such strong feelings about him, both, both for and against. I think the bigger issue, which, which you've mentioned, is uh, will there be a turn to the status quo? And this is definitely what the establishment, what the ruling class, what the intellectual class wants, was to go back to the old ways. And I, I agree with you, the great fear of the Durham report is that it will cause, you know, it's already caused a little stir, and then it will just sort of fade away and nothing fundamental will change. What I fear is, um, look, this cannot, that which cannot continue won't continue, right? And I think the country cannot continue in this way. Uh, the, the ruling class is deluding itself if they think they can just carry on, um, you know, even apart from whether or not there's there's enough, you know, whatever you want to call the MAGA voters or conservative voters, um, even if you can, uh, um, you know, keep political control, uh, I don't even, again, another thing I don't even want to get into is, is the question of the stolen election. Uh, you know, there's there's good evidence. There's a wonderful book written by a woman named Molly Hemingway, who shows even without any overt ballot stealing between what was done with the social media and all the changes that were made with COVID, the election was manipulated in a way out in the open, right? And I think there's a lot of concern about that happening again. So even leaving aside, uh, you know, what the MAGA voters might do, uh, we can't continue in this way financially, we can't continue in this way socially, we can't continue. I mean, you cannot indefinitely deplete the social, economic, and political capital of a great country and not face any consequences. And, uh, you know, the rest of the world <laughs> is also out there. We're destroying ourselves. We're hollowing out our military. We're bankrupting ourselves. Uh, and China, you know, is just standing by, smiling. <laughs> uh, but, but also, you know, we no longer have the credibility and the clout we have in Europe. Um, and I think things are going to come to a head you know, leave aside Trump entirely, leave aside the MAGA voters entirely. Uh, we, this country is coming to a great crisis, I fear, um, regardless of what of uh, what the right wing does. Color, color in that crisis a little bit for us. What do you think that looks like? Well, my so I'm one reason I fled Washington D.C. and and came out to West Virginia is partly because the city was becoming really more and more unpleasant. Uh, but partly, you know, I don't want to, I'm not a survivalist. I'm not in a, in a secret location on the mountain. I live in an ordinary sort of suburban street, but I am, you know, uh, quite a ways outside of Washington. I'm in a rural area, which I like. I have chest freezers full of meat. Uh, I have a, a room with all of my guns. Um, and so I feel a little bit more secure than I did in, in, in Washington, D.C., in part because, look, what happens if there's a, 
a serious financial meltdown, right? Um, uh, it's not impossible that there will be food shortages in this country, right? It's not impossible that there will be uh, waiting lines to get into the hospital, that there will be a, a shortage of medical supplies and, and prescription medicines, right? And so we could have, you know, civil disturbances very easily. Um, and I don't think the country is prepared. I'm, I'm reviewing some books right now for the Claremont Review of Books, a whole series of books on COVID, but also connecting COVID with the, the bigger political picture. Um, and, you know, uh, there's a whole uh, framework set up now, both nationally and internationally, um, to impose very restrictive measures on the American people. You know, uh, we've already seen the writing on the wall. So I think uh, the possibility for things to go seriously awry and for very strict measures to be imposed on the American people is, is a definite possibility. So the cave sounds rather more inviting than it did earlier. <laughs> <laughs> if only, if only we had a cave. We, as you described yours, I think my plan is to grow out a beard, maybe a little bit more unruly than yours, uh, stock up on gold, Bitcoin, and elk meat, and just there you go. <laughs> find a spot next to Plato in the cave. <laughs> I mean, no. Let me emphasize, I'm not a survivalist, and I'm not suggesting that anyone become a survivalist, and I'm certainly not suggesting that anyone do anything dramatic. But I do think we should be sensible uh, in considering the possibility uh, of, of a financial crisis leading perhaps to some other kind of crisis in the country. Oh, yeah, I absolutely agree with you in every way. Um, uh, do you think, though, that maybe our democracy or our republic is a little bit tired? And I, I was reading as as a potent purgative after after spending some time with Foucault in, in anticipation of this conversation with you, I was reading G.K. Chesterton. Um, and I just pulled up a quote from him. I was reading this today and he said, a, a despotism may almost be defined as a tired democracy. And that really struck me. He said that as fatigue falls on a community, the citizens are less inclined for that eternal vigilance, which has truly been called the price of liberty. And they prefer to arm only one single sentinel to watch the city while they sleep. Do you think that this crisis, which seems more or less imminent <laughs> if things continue as they are, uh, do you think that it will overwhelm a fatigued people, a fatigued America, a people who have become somewhat lethargic and less than vigilant? That is the $64,000 question, right? Um, I don't think anyone knows for sure. I myself, again, uh, repeat this point, I'm myself not a pessimist. Um, certainly, uh, I think there is a lot of spirit in some American people. There are still uh, people who remember the old America. There are still people who believe uh, in the virtues of the old America, people who still uh, want to exercise the, the, the virtues and the habits of self-government. The big question is how many are there, right? How many of such people are there and, and how many is enough, right? And, and can they be mobilized in a way to recover our Republican habits and our Republican institutions? I don't think anyone knows for sure. Uh, uh, 
you know, it's sort of an adage that in any uh, great uh, division or, or crisis, there's a third on one side, a third on the other, and a third in the middle. And, and only circumstances will decide where that third in the middle goes. Um, so there's really no way of knowing. Um, uh, but I think it's not just American democracy, right? I mean, I was just having a conversation with some friends the other day. In a way, all of Western civilization is having a kind of crisis of faith. Look at look at the way Australia responded to COVID. Um, it was it was reverting to its roots as a penal colony. I mean, it was astounding. Look at Europe. I mean, Europe seems to have a kind. It seems to be in a kind of cultural spiral death wish, right? I mean, um, uh, native Europeans no longer even believe in the value of European civilization. Um, you know, you have this problem of immigrants who don't believe in the values of Western civilization, uh, are not much interested in obeying the laws of the countries they come to. Uh, you know, you can look north to Canada and the way Canada responded in very despotic and alarming ways to the trucker crisis, freezing people's bank accounts. Uh, you know, you see these things and then you wonder how much of that is going to come to the United States. So I think it's all alarming. I think people should be paying attention, but I'm, I don't think anyone can predict how exactly things are going to play out. If the response of liberty-loving Americans during COVID counts for anything, would you say that our chances during this time and maybe in an, up, uh, in an uh, impending crisis um, are, are stronger or weaker? Because I think we've discussed this. I was absolutely appalled by the spinelessness and the pusillanimity of so many Americans who simply prostrated themselves before <laughs> um, unlawful decrees and just carried on with whatever the government told them to do. Uh, now, I thought that there was some kind of inborn, I don't know, grit in the American spirit, if you can call it that, that would that would never succumb to that sort of a feebleness. But the COVID more or less proved me wrong. And I'm someone who, again, is maybe speaking from a point of some, can I say privilege? <laughs> being of a, in a younger demographic and being healthier, right? So of course I wasn't at high risk of contracting nor of succumbing to the disease, but still I looked around me and even people in my own age group were acting like absolute rank cowards. <laughs> so if ever something truly existential were to face us <laughs> as a country, as a nation, I'm not sure that you know we have that third that would rise up or or you know make itself known politically. I don't mean to say necessarily violently, but um, but would but would demonstrate in such a way that would um, reinsure our our you know inborn rights as Americans. Yeah. So look, I totally agree with you about the very disappointing response of the American people. I will say this partly as way of. Uh, as an exculpatory uh, remark, uh, it's it's much easier to see in hindsight that we should have uh, reacted more strongly. You know, w people even now, maybe a little less now, but certainly in 2019, 2020, 2021, people still trusted, right? I mean, the CDC was regarded as an objective, scientific, trustworthy medical organization. Um, it's now betrayed that trust, and I think people are a lot more cynical. But I don't, I don't, I'm a little reluctant to 
to go too far in blaming people for responding to something that had, was fairly unprecedented, to disinformation that they were, were given, to things that they were told were medically necessary. Now, uh, you know, uh, I think a lot of people have learned their lessons now and, and uh, the regime, you know, the, the powers that be, the ruling class won't be able to pull that same trick again. They might try a different trick though, um, the question is, how much have we learned now, right? That is that is the big question. But but overall, I, I'm with you. I would have liked to see a lot more spiritedness. One of the reasons I left D.C. is I just could not abide living among people who wanted to put masks on their small children walking outside in the park. Uh, you know, I just couldn't be around people who were so naturally slavish. <laughs> you don't see much of that out here in West Virginia. Um, so the question is, yeah, so I, I would say, yeah, it was disappointing. I, I think a few people now have sort of woken up to see Fauci for the fraud that he is, who now are much less inclined to believe uh, what the ruling elite tells them. But again, we don't really know how any of that's going to play out. I would be interested in discussing with you, by the way, because I know, Daniel, this is a longstanding interest of yours. The whole question of health is has very interesting political dimensions. And that's also becoming clear to people. You know, you see a lot among younger people on the right, a very striking interest now in getting their uh, physiques, you know, uh, improved in, in getting their nutrition under control, in, in recognizing that one of, the, one of the lies that the ruling class has told us now for a long time is just outright false information about nutrition. I mean, people have become way too sedentary um, you know, the, uh, even in, in Trump country, one of the problems we have is people are out of shape and overweight and there's way too much fentanyl. And, and so the health crisis is a big part of the political crisis. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The, the, uh, in the way in which those two are uh, entangled is, to me, really interesting. I'm, <laughs> I'm a bit heterodox, I would say, in my approach to health and wellness but I think this heterodoxy is actually gaining in some popularity. Uh, you mentioned, especially on maybe the, the right-wing internet world or in that world, there are a lot of, a lot of new figures emerging who are, um, if not overtly Christian or, Jew, or Jewish um, or, or in that tradition, you know, there, there's a spiritualism about them. There's a, a, an urgency to return to like the very fundamentals of health, which is, or which are, uh, eschew anything that's produced, um, try to avoid at all costs, uh, you know, adulterated or processed foods, return to organic uh, meats and if you're even going to consume vegetables, which is a bit of <laughs> a controversy in some circles, only to do so if they are uh, locally raised, right? To only consume fruits that are that are very organic and pure, to get back to kettlebells and barbells and all the you know all these kind of virile, traditional fundamental moves that are essential for any good physique and to build that physique and to commit yourself to a protocol, right? And, and to consume the right foods and the, the appropriate amount of calories for a given amount of time in order to build all this muscle and to, to be, you know, something of an anti, 
what <laughs> to be exactly the type of man that it seems like the the left doesn't want you to be and i'm i'm not sure if that's the inspiration for their doing so it could be or it could just be a complete uh, exhaustion and and um exasperation uh, with what they've been told they should be or shouldn't be um my one thing that i find peculiar though is that it seems like a lot of these young men who will uh, who will exert themselves nobly in the pursuit of obtaining these wonderful physiques and and um, instilling more wholesome spiritual values, right? practicing mindfulness or meditating, um, they still seem to be somewhat politically cowed. <laughs> like if you were to find these types of men on a university campus, say, they'd probably still be shrunk in their seats in the back row of a psychology lecture or a social sciences lecture while they're told that they and the patriarchal structure of which they are a part are the, you know, a incorrigible menace to Western society and that they, they need to be, if not extirpated, then at least greatly diminished. So I don't know wh when the kind of that physical and political, when they bridge in such a way that these that these confident young men, and we're talking about men, but I mean, women can certainly cultivate wonderful physiques and, and healthy living as well. Um, but I don't know when these men will, you know, begin to um, disseminate, if that's the right word, disseminate <laughs> their, their physical prowess with the, <laughs> it's a metaphor, metaphorically we're using that word. Uh, to the political side, uh, you know, and, and sort of have something produced there as well. Um, what do you think about that, that, windy, that windy response? Yeah, well, um, yes, you're right. Um, let's not discount the extremely strong, aggressive message that is put out by the ruling class. Uh, you are an oppressor. You are illegitimate. You should keep your mouth closed if you are a young, white, heterosexual male, you are at the bottom of the totem pole. Uh, you don't have a right to speak. You are privileged. You should be ashamed of your privilege. But it even goes beyond that, right? Uh, your physical strength is fascistic. Your interest in being health uh, proves that you are a right-wing uh, white supremacist. I mean, these are things, these are messages that are being put out. And then add, add to all of that, look at what happened in the New York City subway. Uh, it was just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you know, this former, uh, the guy, what, what's the guy, the guy's Daniel Penny, is that his name? Daniel, Daniel Penny, yes. Right, and this is not the first time something like this has happened. Like, what, what is the message that the ruling class has put out? If you are a young white male and you defend yourself and you exert physical violence to protect innocent people, you not only, not only, I'm sorry, not only defend yourself, but what? defend the community. Those passengers, I've seen multiple videos where, you know, uh, these thugs, for lack of a better word, and I mean that with no racial connotation, but thugs will 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 accost young women, grab them by the hair, you know. And so this Daniel Penny, I mean, he was both protecting himself, but I think more importantly, he was protecting the, 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 the ridership on that particular subway. Absolutely. And his action would have been regarded universally as heroic 
uh, as little as I think even as little as 30 years ago. And now he's a he's being denominated by the ruling class as a criminal. And, you know, people's lives get ruined. I mean, his life is never going to be the same, even if he's exonerated. Uh, and this is not an isolated instance. Right. And so the reaction you're seeing, it, it, it looks like a kind of timidity by these young men who are virile and strong and all of that. But, you know, it's it's perfectly rational not to want to have your life ruined. Right. Uh, and so, you know, it's no accident that that. It, there, there are, there's a clear message being put out here. And I think a lot of young men are reading that message loud and clear and are reacting in a way that's not, you know, that's unfortunate, but not irrational. Uh, do you think though that there's something again, inborn in the, in the American man, let's say the young man that will viscerally reject that message and still, you know, stand up and push out his chest a little bit when, when an injustice is being committed? Or do you think that enough of this, um, this message being conveyed to him will eventually cause him to collapse, his knees to wobble and him to fall down beneath its weight? Right. Well, clearly the, the intention or the desire of the ruling class is the latter. Now, this is a risky strategy, of course, right? You can, you can poke a bear for a long time uh, and, and uh, maybe get away with it, but there's always the danger that one poke too many is going to get the bear to rear up uh, and, and swipe your head off, <laughs> right? And so if you keep antagonizing a, a large portion, you know, a healthy, strong, physically active portion of the population and keep poking them and kicking them and, and insulting them, that's a, that's a risky game to play. And simultaneously to depend on this same population to populate a disproportionate number of your military ranks. And right. of course he was a veteran, but you have to think of the numbers of white heterosexual um, Bible-loving young men from the middle of the country who perished in our overseas wars. Right. And if you want to talk about proportionality in the population, right, everybody needs to be equally represented. Well, I can assure you that the, the numbers of young men who are dying overseas are not, um, you know, overwhelmingly uh, any race other than white, let's say. <laughs> right, right. So here's another sort of interesting twist that I sometimes uh, talk about with, with some friends and colleagues. In a way, the ruling class does seem very powerful, very smart. They keep winning and we keep losing. We meaning, you know, people like me who are on the right keep losing. And yet there's something uh, irrational and kind of stupid about what they're doing because uh, it's hard to see how they think they can keep playing, playing this game uh, indefinitely. You know, when I left D.C., I left people who were mostly lawyers and consultants and baristas and you know, sociology graduate students. And I moved out here uh, and I live with people who can hunt, who know how to fix a truck, uh, who do real work, who keep the country running, right? And I don't know what the ruling class thinks it's going to accomplish when it demonizes and alienates the people who literally keep the lights on and the trucks running and the food uh, being delivered to the plates of all these smug leftist intellectuals. <laughs> so it's in a way an extraordinarily risky and kind of dumb strategy. And I, I again, I don't know how it's, this is going to play out, but it's, it's all very peculiar. 
That move for you, just to focus on you personally, has that been overall salubrious? Have you have you enjoyed the change of location? Um, yes and no. So uh, I call myself I call myself a Walmart voter, but I'm a little bit. I have to confess, I'm a little bit of a Whole Foods shopper. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, like you, I would I'd like to get grass fed beef and pastured eggs and wild caught salmon. And, you know, to be perfectly frank, that's not so easy to do uh, in the rural part of West Virginia. Um, you know, you would think we're out here where the cows and the chickens actually are, and you can get a little bit of that, but it's yeah. it's kind of an odd thing that to get, you know, good natural, and I, I, I do get grass-fed beef from a local farmer. I buy an eighth of a cow every now and then, but it, but it's surprisingly hard sometimes to get outside of the big plastic box store uh, options when you're not. The other thing is leaving DC, I, I mentioned to some friends of mine, uh, you know, the, the major urban metropolises in this country are going down the tubes. But one thing that annoys me is I grew up in New York. I lived for a long time in, in Washington, DC. You know, the Carnegie's and the Mellons and the Astors and the Vanderbilts bequeathed to the American people wonderful gifts, museums and libraries and concert halls and Lincoln Center. And, you know, Washington, DC has all of these things paid for, by the way, by the American taxpayers, the National Gallery of Art and the Smithsonian. And I enjoyed having access to all of that. And it upsets me and angers me that because the left has made these cities unlivable, these uh, great gifts that belong to the American people uh, uh, are, are in, uh, almost off limits to ordinary people because the cities are being turned into these unlivable places. And that angers me. Yeah, and I'm sure those who bequeath to us these treasures, these cultural treasures, never intended that. Right, of course not. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's fascinating, and I, I love that term. A wall is it a Walmart voter and a Whole Foods shopper? Right, right. I, I felt I felt precisely the same way when I when I lived briefly in Larray, Virginia. Precisely the same way, and and it's right. Uh, you're absolutely right. Now that I reflect on that time. Um, yeah, like every everyone was dependent either on the food lion, of which there was only one, or or the Walmart, which I think was in the next town over. All around me, and and the aroma has has not quite left me. <laughs> All around me were were poultry farms and chicken coops, and you know, uh, and then cow farms with cows on them as well. Rolling pastures, beautiful, very picturesque. But you're right, I. There wasn't a, um, a market, or maybe just not one of which I was aware, selling you know these grass-fed, very organic um, cuts of meat. Which now that I look back on it, it was a little bit odd, and I'm I'm sorry that it wasn't the case for me. Right, right. Like I said, I am lucky that I have a neighbor just a couple miles from here who raises 100% uh, grass-fed cows, and I have access to that. But still, there's a lot of other things. Uh, that I don't have easy access to, which is a little unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, kombucha might be hard to come by at uh, at, the, <laughs> at Walmart. Right. <laughs> well, I I want to return just briefly to the point about our young men and the, their place, let's say, in 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 this society. I'm going to pull up a quote here from the peroration of your forthcoming book, The Narrow Passage. Um, which is an excellent work um, that I encourage everybody to read once it's released this summer. Um, but 
you sent me an advanced sort of script and I, I was enraptured by it and I, I have a quite a quite a few quotes from from it and and this is a quote that you pulled from Strauss, um, one of the intellectual giants uh, to whom you referred earlier. And you said that there will always be men, and he uses the word Andres, which is, I'm assuming, the Latin or the Greek, who will revolt against a state which is destructive of humanity or in which there is no longer a possibility of noble action and great deeds. And I was just reminded as you brought up Daniel Penny um, as an example of sort of this maybe vestigial masculine figure who's withering away before our very eyes as this type of man uh, who will revolt against the state which is destructive of humanity. Do you have anything to say about that particular quote? Right. So, you know, Strauss himself was a very interesting character. He was 100% pure intellectual. He despised physical exercise. He smoked. <laughs> Uh, and my, his student, my teacher, Harry Jaffa, was kind of an exercise fanatic, uh, never smoked, never drank, and was always chastising Strauss. Um, and so you would think that Strauss would be kind of, you know, this timid, weak, but, but uh, intellectually, and you might say morally, he was a very tough guy. Uh, and he was very fond of this Greek word. So in Greek, there's two words you can use to refer to, to men or human beings. Anthropoi, which just means human beings, and Andres, which meant, you know, real men. And in class, sometimes he would say, you know, hombres. And so <laughs> he would use that term, hombres, like real men. And he pointed out that the philosopher, in a way, has to have courage. And the philosopher, in a way, you, you uh, in a way, the philosopher sort of uh, doesn't represent the ordinary moral political virtues because he's just interested in the life of inquiry. But he also has to be manly in a certain way. And, and, Strauss, again, because he did not think that political philosophy meant retreating from politics, uh, just running away and, you know, in, engaged in private navel gazing. Um, but that political philosophy always has to be engaged with politics and in a way needs politics to learn something. In, in a way, politics is necessary to the philosophic life itself. But he also uh, appreciated very much uh, the qualities of a statesman and the necessity of these sort of hombres for healthy political life. Um, <laughs> contrary to what people might suppose if they saw a picture of Strauss, who was this little hunched over smoking German. <laughs> yeah. And of course the Latin word is vir, right. from which, from which we get, from which we get virile and we also get virtue. Right. Which I think is always a, maybe an uncomfortable <laughs> etymology for, for the feminists, but, but is, I think, worth considering. You have that connection of Andres, Vir, or, or Weir, and Vir, and, and then virtue. And then, of course, we build upon that all of the, you know, the, the traditional classical virtues and the Christian ones as well. Right. Um, Can I just say one other thing about that quote? Um, that comes in the context of Strauss uh, corresponding with an intellectual that no one really remembers today, uh, named Alexander Kojev, who was this very prominent French intellectual, was key in putting together the European Union. Turned out he was a Stalinist spy working for the French bureaucracy in Paris in the middle of the 20th century, but also a very highly respected uh, philosopher in, in the vein of Hegel and Marx. And he and Strauss carried on a very, very interesting correspondence over many years. And Kojev, this French intellectual, believed in in 
a global tyranny, a worldwide, what, we, what was sometimes called the universal homogenous state. That is a global technocratic tyranny. Is that the World Economic Forum? <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because you took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, Klaus Schwab, who sort of looks a little, I mean, he looks, he dresses like a character out of a 1970s James Bond novel. And he's, you know, almost a caricature. So you're, you might be inclined not to take him seriously, but I think we ought to take the World Economic Forum seriously. And Strauss, you know, we've been talking about different ways that things could go in America. Uh, but I think, Globally, you know, Strauss himself was very worried about this idea of a global technocratic uh, regime, and that threat has certainly not gone away. I don't know, certainly not. I think it's only waxed <laughs> in, in recent years. Uh, I want to turn, pivot really, uh, to a different thinker, quite antithetical to Strauss, to Jaffa, and probably to you as well, <laughs> and that's to Nietzsche. Um, someone of with whom I'll always be fascinated. Uh, I think he's uh, just you know a brilliant a brilliant thinker and on many different levels. Uh, but he too was uh, not exactly to to use the word <laughs> virile. He was a rather sickly individual, but he too had this idea of well the the ubermensch, this sort of you know mighty over overman. And even in earlier works, he talked about. Um, um, well, when he talks about master and slave morality, for instance, he, he's talking about this natural aristocrat, these, these heroic individuals who should be able to exert themselves and to fulfill their will to power, right? The, the famous term with which he's always associated. Um, what do you think about the, the risk of some of our young men in America choosing instead of the maybe more um, salutary Aristotelian, um, Elmer, Elmerian <laughs> path, <laughs> choosing instead the Nietzschean path, which is uh, quite a temptation, I would think, for a lot of young men who are absolutely fed up with what they see before them, um, and going out and establishing themselves as a, as a Nietzschean would and establishing their will to power and to create, creating their own, um, you know, moral universe in which they can live and, and they can thrive and they can thrust and wrestle and do what it is that they want to do. Um, uh, somewhere in that is a question. <laughs> um, but I guess I want you to comment on how that impulse can be checked how one can be redirected from the Nietzschean path and brought to a, a, a healthier place where I think you and I want them to, to land. Right. Yeah, so that's a complicated question which would uh, uh, require a pretty uh, long answer. So yes, there's certainly this attraction to Nietzsche uh, on the, you know, people on the, sometimes called the dissident right. I don't think that term certainly is used as much as it was a few years ago. The, just younger people on the right. Uh, I mean, people forget. So first of all, the Ubermensch, the will to power, all that. I mean, in a way, uh, it, it needs to be remembered that, that Nietzsche is talking about philosophers, right? Um, the, you know, the, the global aristocracy that he calls for uh, that would, that would uh, bring in a new age of man uh, is really led by philosophers. And so he's hardly anti-intellectual. 
the, the bigger problem, I think, is uh, A, the retreat from politics. So let me, let me step back first. Nietzsche's critique of uh, modern liberal democracy, and certainly the degenerate form that it's descended into, is very potent and in a way very accurate. Uh, I'm a big fan of Nietzsche. Nietzsche says very many things, and I quote some some passages from Nietzsche, uh, which are right on the money, right? He talks about uh, the celebration of victimhood and how victim is the people who appoint themselves victims uh, in a way then use that victimization uh, in a way they, they celebrate weakness and sickness and turn it into a virtue. And it becomes grotesque in a way. I mean, he's right on the money there, right? People who obsess over the injustices of the past and and, and weaponize that. Uh, he talks about that in the genealogy of morals. We see that, right? Um, so he's he's a very trenchant and potent critic of a lot of things that have gone wrong with modern society. Um, but uh, and and because his his solution, the eternal return and the will to power and the new global aristocracy, is philosophic and hard to understand and complicated, it's easy to develop a comic book version of that. And here's the answer to, to your question is, I don't think anything is uh, solved really by becoming a comic book Nietzschean. And you see this a little bit in the kind of LARPing, right? Oh, let's become a pirate. You know, there's a very popular book uh, on the right, Bronze Age Pervert. And by the way, the author of Bronze Age Pervert is a very smart, well-educated guy. And there's some very interesting things in there, but some of his devotees are a little bit, you know, some of this is a little adolescent, right? Let's, uh, you know, uh, they 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 become they you know they want monarchy and they talk about being pirates and all, and none of it is really very serious, and none of it is going to have any practical effect uh, for recovering uh, the moral conditions of freedom uh, and our own liberties and fighting. The impending tyranny. I mean, you know, are these people going to be helpful uh, in in preparing an organized political response that we need to salvage Republican government and fight uh, the woke despotism that's emerging? They don't seem very helpful to me, in part because they're engaged in this sort of adolescent comic book version of Nietzscheanism rather than being politically responsible and politically thoughtful. Yeah. I think Nietzsche is one with whom you are supposed to mature. You can get caught in an arrested stage of Nietzscheanism, <laughs> I think, if you're intellectually curious or precocious, uh, especially as a young man. And maybe the I don't know much about Bronze Age pervert. I've, uh, what is what is it? Bronze Bronze Age mindset is the book. Bronze Age mindset is the book. Mindset, yeah. So I'm, uh, you know. Uh, very, very distantly familiar with with who he is and, and his work. But like I said, I think there is a, a risk if you're not um, if you're not w well enough grounded in in the classics of being caught by Nietzsche yeah. in some of his more provocative statements and some of his exhortations. And if that's the case, well, then that leads to as we discussed previously, the, the nihilism, the relativism, um, and, and the despair. I think that can accompany those things. Uh, now, of course, Nietzsche was famous for uh, his, his idea of the transvaluation of values. And I think that's the real 
trans phenomenon that we should we should be talking about. <laughs> yeah, <the laughs> trans. Yeah. That just came to me when we were talking about Nietzsche's. All along we've we've kind of missed it. <laughs> it's the transvaluation of values that we should be focused on, not the the trans ideology that we see before us. Um, well, I mean, we've talked about a lot of things here. What do you think is the most imminent threat to to um, to the republic? Uh, <laughs> well, there there's two dangers. Uh, there's the danger of decent. All right, so there's the danger of the threat itself, right? The 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 this weird mixture of you know, obsession with racial identity mixed with, uh, you know, the Silicon Valley oligarchs uh, and the rest of the ruling class in, in the bureaucracy and the academy and all of that, which is this weird mixture of socialism and racial obsession and, and a sort of technocratic oligarchy. Uh, and all of those people have a very bad agenda, which is in no way favorable to those of us who are still attached to the older idea of constitutional self-government. Um, and so that's a political bias. The, the, but the other danger is there are still a lot of decent people on our side, for lack of a better word, who don't quite see the danger, who, who find it just too discomforting, who still hold out hope that we can go back to the old normal. And I don't think there is going to be any return to the old normal at this point. We've, uh, we've, I, I just don't see how we can go back to that. Um, and so the question is, you know, are there enough people uh, who recognize how dire the situation is and are willing to to wage the necessary, you know, in, engage in the necessary strenuous political action that will be required? So, you know, in a way, we both have to mobilize. We have to fight the other side. But we also have to mobilize our side to, to realize there's a war on, right? I mean. People on the right have been talking about the culture war for decades, um, um, and yet there's still a lot of people who don't quite see how, how serious and how far along that war now is. Yeah, and perhaps they won't until uh, before it's too late. And I think that's um, I think that's more natural to the conservative uh, to well to live a life similar to that which you're living in, in a certain way, right? To be somewhat displaced from from everything that's happened or is happening, and to focus on family, to focus on religious obligations, to focus on the very fundamentals that, like you said, make this country work. Whereas the other side is much more, um, much more activated to to implement certain radical ideas. And you know, if they're more activated and more motivated to do these things, they will. Right. And don't forget, and, by the way, just one quick thing. It's, you know. If you're a certain age and you've lived your whole life as an attorney or a professor or some some high status, reputable, you know, your livelihood, your life savings, your house, your profession, your prestige are all tied up in this regime, right? And you may see that it's problematic. You may see that it's under a lot of stress. But when people like me talk in this very radical language about overturning things that we have to have a sort of a revolutionary, politically revolutionary mindset, um, that alarms them. And they don't want the status quo overturned to such a degree that they lose everything that they've built up, right? Not just their financial capital, but their political and economic and social capital. And it's alarming and disturbing to them to hear talk that they find too radical. Uh, and so they just, 
don't want to hear uh, that kind of language. Uh, and you know, it's understand. I think it's wrong, but it is understandable. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely understandable. But then again, I, I go back when I think that way, um, because I can be lured into that way of thinking as well. I go back to some of these, some of the founders uh, who were, you know, a a peculiar group of individuals, right? Mostly very well educated and of some means, right, um, and of some stature. But still, they were willing to risk relatively a lot at that time. And the fruits of their risk of their sacrifice are what we are now throwing away. <laughs> but we, we enjoyed for a little while and now are throwing away. Uh, you mentioned basically the three pillars, as you call them, of, of woke politics. That's the BLM aspect, which is the, the racial aspect, Antifa, the, the anarcho-Marxists and the oligarchs. I, I pulled another excerpt from your, from your latest work uh, in which you ask very, um, um, in, uh, provocatively, uh, is there a unifying theory to hold together this potent but unstable coalition? And you go on to ask a series of questions that I think would probably befuddle those who uh, constitute these, these pillars of woke politics. So as an outsider to this kind of uh, amorphous organization, what do you see as being their ultimate goal? I'm not sure they know themselves. I mean, one sort of speculation I throw out in the book, which I think is near that passage you're referring to, is, um, you know, for a long time, liberalism believed in progress and that progress would lead to sort of, you know, the end of history. Uh, and that took, you know, one version with Marxism, we would have the final utopia, uh, Hegel thought, you know, it would be the rational state. Um, and you still see, you know, uh, this, this optimistic belief in progress, you know, Obama's hope and change. And, you know, it still constitutes a big part of, you know, sort of conventional rhetoric on, on the left. But there's also a part of the left that has long ago given up on progress. And this is where the, the political movement of the new left emerged in the 60s, which, which decided uh, you know, things aren't getting better, <laughs> right? In some ways, things are getting worse. And so we have to force the revolution, right? In order to bring radical change. And if you're a devotee of the various minute strands of Marxist thought, you know, the offshoot that Mao developed, which was, uh, you know, we have to force the revolution. We're never going to have uh, the the urban working class that Marx called for. So we'll just use peasants and we'll, we'll you know, force the revolution, just make it happen. And so the idea of permanent revolution, uh, permanent change, change for its own sake, sort of took place. And it is a kind of quasi-nihilistic, right? Uh, just being opposed to everything, just just overturn uh, without even having anything better to, to replace it. And I think, you know, for some on the left who don't seem to have any conception of what kind of good society they want, don't have a theory of the good life that I can see, uh, are just have just fallen back to this idea of the permanent revolution. Uh, it's it's hard to understand. I mean, there's there's a lot about what's going on on the left that I don't understand, and I don't think anyone quite understands. Uh, there's certainly elements of it that seem contradictory and and hard to piece together. Yeah, I recently read a book by the author Czech French author Milan Kundra. Oh yeah. Uh, 
and he the work is his most famous the unbearable lightness of being i believe yeah and um i i rented it from the library i actually ordered myself a copy anytime that that happens you know it's a, a, an important book that needs to be uh, needs its place on the bookshelf behind me <laughs> so i ordered it and i'm going to kind of take my marginal notes again but he talks about the grand march he kind of deviates away from the the narrative of the story which is sort of this torrid love affair of this doctor who is quite promiscuous and he he talks about in a political commentary um basically what you said but in a in an interesting novelistic form he talks about this idea of the grand march and it's this inexorable interminable movement toward well I mean, we don't really know exactly. It's a utopian a destination toward which they're going, but it's the grand march. So you just continue to to walk on <laughs> regardless of the destination. You can't quite articulate what that is. You don't exactly have a prior example in history of what it might be, but you just keep walking nonetheless. <laughs> and I thought that was just a, very well put and absolutely uh, resonant with what with what you just said. Right, right. I mean, you know, again, there's different strands there, and it's hard to see. Uh, by the way, I think Kundera's novel was made into a movie in the in the 80s, maybe. Um, you might you might look that up. I read that novel a long time ago. But you know, so one part I think we were talking a little bit earlier about the idea of a global technocratic tyranny, and I think there's certainly elements of that. You know, the, the Silicon Valley people and the the World Economic Forum. But one of the things I point out, and that you alluded to, is how does that jibe with this obsession with racial identity, which is not meritocratic, it's not technocratic, right? This obsession with the past and the grievances of the past and the legacy of slavery and this very backwards looking and a very, in a way, primitive focus on our tribal identities. You know, that's certainly not Marxism was, you know, the brotherhood of man and and the, the global oligarchy is is, you know, science will save us. And so how does that fit with this primitive regressive uh, racial tribalism. I, again, um, I don't know that anyone has sort of seen how all of this fits together. It might be the Nietzschean resentment. Yeah. Yeah, the resentment that he talks about is definitely part of this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, maybe no small part, but you're right. And, and also this kind of neo-feudalistic uh, relationship that we have, like you said, we have the, this upper crust, very thin upper crust of these uh, technocratic elites, these oligarchs, um, transnational oligarchs, and then, uh, well, a, a, a very large underclass, let's say. In America, it's a little bit different because we have a relatively large, prosperous middle class. Right? I guess we're the bourgeoisie, um, but th this proletariat, I think, is is one upon which a lot of the <laughs> feudal lords look at disdainfully. <laughs> so it's, a, I don't know, there's not, to say that there's not a lot of internal logic, I think is, is a gross understatement. And I don't think the theorists, let's say on the other side, really have much to say about that. I'd like to, I'd like to know, I would gladly host any of them on this little show and, and, and learn. Um, but I think that's what's so attractive about the Straussian or Elmerian. <laughs> I'm going to make that term stick, but but there's something. It's not the most mellifluous word, and I don't think I deserve an adjective, frankly. Uh, when it's when it's articulated in the right tone, it can be mellifluous. But um, 
that's why I think there's such an appeal to this philosophy. And of course, it's not a philosophy that you know that you came up with yesterday. I mean, this is the the wisdom of the ages. This is Plato and Aristotle and you know Cicero, and this is coming to us through Aquinas and all these great you know giants of Western thought um, that that permeate our entire you know let's say culture until today. And of course, they risk dying out on the on this, the very fruitful vine from which we've been plucking uh, endlessly um, if if we don't sustain them. But on the other side, there there is not this internal logic. It doesn't. It's not as it's not as clear thinking, um, and it's it's not as beautiful. And I think that's a that's a fundamental feature as well. Is you read Plato, you read Aristotle, and and some of the great thinkers, and and there's a certain beauty and a purity to them. And you mentioned natural law, and uh, you know that's um, between Jerusalem and Athens. I think that's probably the the most important um, inheritance that we as Westerners have received. And here, with the the forces of historicism and, and relativism and and nihilism, as we as we recounted, uh, you know that's that's very uh, it's threatened, uh, gravely threatened. Uh, so I don't want to end on such a dour note. <laughs> we both share an affection for Shakespeare, so uh, we're going to just pivot right into him for a couple minutes, and then maybe we'll bid we'll bid adieu. So let me ask you, because I don't think I know this about you, although we've spoken of Shakespeare in the past. What is your favorite play? Uh, the play that I know best and that I've studied the most, so I guess in a way is my favorite, is King Lear, just because I think it's uh, endlessly interesting and plays a very important, uh, uh, has a very important role in Shakespeare's corpus. And, and I'm of the view that Shakespeare even had a kind of project. I mean, I think Shakespeare's political thought, Shakespeare's depth as a political and philosophical thinker has come to be appreciated. And I think he did have a sort of a project underway in what he wanted his poetry to do. And I think Lear plays an important role in that. Um, well, let me ask you, what do you think that the end goal of that project was? Uh, it was to uh, respond to the crisis identified by Machiavelli in non-Machiavellian ways. Now, oh, this, is long, this is a longer conversation. <laughs> about five minutes, I'm sorry. I, I, I am writing... I want to return to this later. <laughs> we could do a whole episode on this. Yeah, um, I would like I, to. I have written an essay on what I think Lear's place is and its its purpose, uh, which will be out won't be out for a little while. But but um, we might have to put a pin in that. Let me say one of the so uh, I'm also a big fan of Macbeth, which was Lincoln's favorite, and then one that I just enjoy, which I think is fun and it's a weird dark. It's a comedy, but a very dark one, which is Measure for Measure, and I enjoy Measure for Measure very much. Uh, I always enjoy watching it. And I think there's all sorts of fun, interesting stuff going on there. And so I, I just, as, as a play that I enjoy, I would say that one. And with which character from the entire corpus would you say you most resonate? Resonate? Well, uh, I don't you know. Uh, if you could be placed in any of the plays and you feel like you could inhabit the role Oh, <laughs> you know, uh, the Duke, uh, you know, as you know, so if I could pick anything, 
the Duke, the role that the Duke of Dark Corners uh, plays in Measure for Measure is very interesting. You know, uh, he's not quite Prospero from the Tempest, who's an almost, you know, mythical figure. Um, he's not, you know, as as grand as King Lear or as formidable as, say, Coriolanus is a very interesting character who I think is impressive, although flawed. But I, I like the Duke in Measure for Measure. You know, he's he's withdraws a little bit. He's a little sneaky, um, but he's got some very interesting sort of intellectual political project going on that I think is very interesting. So I find him, a, you know, if, if, if I had to play a, a character in a Shakespeare play, I wouldn't mind playing him. Okay, not, I was not expecting that. I was expecting someone a little sexier, someone who would grab the headlines a little bit more. <laughs> uh, Henry V? I mean, there we go. There we go. <laughs> yeah. I can recite the St. Crispin's Day speech, but I, I don't think I could, I could play Henry V. That's, that's, above my, that's above my virility scale. Tell me how oh, the virility, there we go again. <laughs> Get back into your cave, eat some elk meat in that. They're just out there. We'll be more than adequate to play that role. Uh, tell me, was it, were you always fond of, of Shakespeare and great English literature, or was it uh, maybe having studied Lincoln and learning about his affection for the great bard that you found your way into the literature? Um, I was always... Um sort of found Shakespeare interesting. I enjoyed going to a play, a Shakespeare play, if I had the opportunity. But it was really my book on Jaffa uh, that you held up earlier. That, uh, I mean, Jaffa was a great Shakespeare fan. He went to Yale uh, in the 1930s and, and studied Shakespeare at Yale when that was a pretty, you know, before all the Ivy League schools went down the tubes. Um, and he received an astonishing education um, and read read Shakespeare with some great English professors at Yale, and developed a lifelong interest in it, and wrote very interesting essays on two of my favorites that I mentioned, Lear Measure for Measure, uh, and also Macbeth. Uh, and that really uh, propelled, and reading Jaffa's scholarship and writing about him uh, really sort of deepened my interest in Shakespeare in the last five years or so. Now, have you ever tried your hand at poetry? Uh, no. <laughs> have you ever written any poetry, Daniel? I I have, yes, yes. You have them on your website, right? Um, I'm sure I do, maybe some older pieces, but I've recently I've written a few sonnets. That's, I don't, I read, I, I, well, I, I'm not unique in, obviously, in this response, but I just read Shakespeare and I'm, endlessly floored by just how prolific he was and how brilliant he was in a relatively short amount of time. He wasn't a long-lived person, not, not that most uh, you know, <laughs> 17th century Englishmen were, but uh, I mean, he didn't emerge out of his five decades of life. He wrote, you know, what, however many, 27 plays or so, 150 some odd sonnets, and uh, you know, some of them are better than others, but I mean, to have that record of success that may or may not even have been acknowledged during his lifetime <laughs> is right. to me so extraordinary. So I read his works and I just feel almost as though there's a Shakespearean muse floating above me. And in my paltry ability, I have to try to exercise that in some way and, and kind of 
um, channel that great poetic influence somewhere. So for me, it, it, it manifests itself in like silly little sonnets um, of which I'll have to send you a couple. Um, I think you, I think you did. Yeah, I think I at least, and you know, they, they might be childish or, or maybe maybe affected, but I think it's very fun to exercise that part of your brain if you're if oh, you're yeah. if you're constantly like you immersed in all of this sort of heavy philosophical political work. The fact that you and and Lincoln, <laughs> your great hero, um, were able to balance the poetic and the prosaic, the political and the literary, I think is wonderful and probably necessary in this ideal statesman um, that, that we've been talking about uh, here and there. Um, so that might be a pre- Churchill essay, painting of the past. Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that might be the prerequisite that we need. <laughs> we need to ensure if it's a Trump or a DeSantis or a Biden that they are able at least to quote one soliloquy from any <laughs> any work from the Shakespearean oeuvre. <laughs> I would like to see Biden go after um, anything from Hamlet. That would be interesting. King Lear, I suppose, would be fitting for the, <laughs> for the madness of the king. <laughs> I, I would settle if most of our uh, most of our politicians could quote something from the Constitution. <laughs> but I was just going to say, yeah. um, you know, people discount this nowadays because we're also hyper focused on on things. But Churchill wrote a, a wonderful essay called "Painting as a Pastime," which I commend to people. Uh, it is it is useful and important, as you say, to to pull ourselves away from you know our day to day intense work. And have pastimes and hobbies and you know physical fitness which i know you're very interested in can serve that purpose but we also you know we should read fiction and paint and get out in nature uh none of us do that enough and i think it's an important part of having a good quality life absolutely i think we're relearning that we're relearning how to be renaissance people and i'm reminded of edmund burke uh, uh, about whom I'd like to know your feelings, but <laughs> maybe in a different episode. I know that you know, some are, are in the, on the conservative side are, are great um, champions of his and, and some detractors. But his first work, his, his virgin work was, I, I think, um, on the Sublime and Beautiful. This was a work in aesthetics. So before he was this kind of renowned political philosopher after the release of his reflections on the revolution in France, he, he wrote this beautiful treatise on the sublime and the beautiful. And he, I mean, he like a, like a perfect esthetician, he, he talks about both these factors. And, and you have to have, I think, uh, a very well-rounded appreciation of, of all things in life. And I, you talked about the failure of our elite institutions, our Ivy League schools. I think um, these liberal arts programs have done a great disservice to, to their student bodies for many years because no longer do you find someone who is fluent in the literature of Shakespeare and then can talk about the Constitution and then can talk about the... Federalist papers or what have you, and kind of merge the the three, and I think that's what really heightens the well the experience of of a Westerner, let's say, or you know anyone in the world. But but really, that's an our that's our inheritance, and we need to cherish that and hold on to that and cultivate that. Do you have any concluding thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, actually, you set me up perfectly for one last thought I have, which is one. One bright spot in the emphasis that you see a lot with these younger people and their interest in Nietzsche is it has led them to an interest in beauty. 
And you know, there is a corporeal aspect to that, the, the beauty of the physical form, which is uh, you know, a legitimate thing, the Greeks, but just beauty in general. And so um, you know, to the degree that, that uh, uh, there is a renewed interest by, by people in uh, the proper use of leisure, of, of, uh, of health and of beauty, um, that doesn't sound like much, but it can actually uh, be a lot. Um, in terms of uh, recovering uh, the habits and the opinions and, and uh, the interest in a good life uh, that I think all of us are interested in. Absolutely. Uh, maybe I'll leave our listeners with one final question that I like to pose to people. Uh, of the three transcendentals, upon which do you place the most importance, truth, beauty, or goodness? Uh, I'm with Plato, and I think uh, you you can't really have either unless the good comes first. And so I will say the good. Interesting. That's uh, the most off. That's the commonest response that I've been receiving lately, and it's that's encouraging. So, uh, with that, Glenn, I am so grateful for your time. Um, we we went on and on, and we carried, I think, a lot of heavy topics and I think we did so gracefully <laughs> and I hope our listeners will agree. Um, of course, I think there are a lot of roads that we need to pursue in the future. So I hope that we can do this again. Um, let me give the floor to you just briefly. Is there any platform, social media page or anything like that uh, on which people can contact you or through which they can follow you? Um, I can be contacted through the Claremont Institute. Um, I, I write quite a bit for their website, for the Claremont Review of Books, for another website called American Greatness. Um, I, I'm not on Twitter. Uh, I had to get off for my own psychological health a couple years ago. Um, and let me, by the way, uh, turn it back to you and say congratulations on all your work, the interesting conversations you're, you're having. And I hope you get many more subscribers, which I think you certainly do deserve. Oh, well, thank you so very much. Now I'm content with the uh, 20 or so that I have on the, <laughs> on the podcast. 20,000, I'm sure. Oh, your lips to God's ears. So we'll see. But again, for me, it's, you know, it's just something about which I'm passionate. I love having these interchanges, especially with such fertile minds like, you, like yours. I mean, it's just, to me, just such a such a treat to be able to do this remotely, you in West Virginia, me in Florida. Hopefully at some point we'll be able to join together in person and, and do something really interesting. I think that would be amazing. Um, but um, so we won't be tweeting at you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, yeah, you certainly should pick up the, the next issue of the Claremont Review of Books to, to which I'm a subscriber. It's a fantastic um, publication. Um, like I said, the Soul of Politics, <laughs> available where all uh, fine books are sold. And uh, look out in this uh, for your forthcoming book this summer in July. We'll have the narrow passage that will be released. And I'll, I'll be sure to promote that to all those who are listening. <laughs> so with that, I think we will depart. Until next time, fare thee well, everyone, from Finneran's Wake. <laughs>